Amos chapter number 1 this evening, and I'd like to begin reading at verse number 11. Now, if you feel like we're starting in the middle of something, don't be surprised because we're sort of starting in the middle of something. Uh, But I'll give you a little bit of background and context and maybe say a word about last Sunday night's sermon uh, before we get into the message. Amos chapter number 1, verse number 11, Word of God says, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof because he did pursue his brother with the sword, and did cast off all pity, and his anger did tear perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Teman, which shall devour the palaces of Basra. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead, that they might enlarge their borders. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour the palaces thereof, and shout with shouting in the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, saith the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1 reads this way, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. But I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kerioth. And Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting, and with the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the judge from the midst thereof, and will slay all the princes thereof with him, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of the Lord, and have not kept His commandments, and their lies caused them to err, after the which their fathers have walked. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, bless Your Word tonight, and through the blessing of Thy Word, bless Your people. Lord, I know there's nothing that could uh, that could increase our joy and our uh, our spiritual life and our well-being quite as much as you wielding the the word as as the sword of the spirit this evening working in our lives drawing to our attention areas of our life that may need to be addressed convicting us of uh, maybe some of those idols that we've put up in our life and father just dealing with us according to thy will and that's what we've come for tonight we enjoy, Father, the fellowship, and we love the music, and, and we enjoy the congregational singing. But really, when we get down to it, we came to meet with you tonight, Lord. We came to hear from heaven and for you to deal with your people. And so, Father, that's what we desire above all. And we pray especially for that as, as all the rest of the service is behind us now. May we focus our attention upon this greatest of tasks and purpose. And, Father, may you have your will and way. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We began a couple Sunday nights ago walking through the book of Amos, and we preached the first week on this thought, the the heart of the herdman. And we just took a little bit of time on a Sunday night and talked about who Amos is. Uh, who uh, Amos was and how God used Amos to uh, prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel uh, during his day when he lived and, and what sort of the substance and spirit of his message was. And it was instructive to be reminded that, hey, God uses the most unlikely of people in great and glorious ways. And then last Sunday night we began looking at this uh, this ensemble of, of woes that is pronounced 
against eight different nations or kingdoms that opens the book of Amos. And we made sort of a, a, a few observations concerning it. We started last week by looking at Damascus, the capital of Syria, back in chapter 1 and verses 3 through 5. We looked at Gaza, uh, the capital of the Philistines, the Phoenician people there in verses 6 down through verse number 8. And then we looked at the uh, people of Tyre, uh, the uh, Gentile peoples of uh, Tyre in verse number 9 uh, down to verse number 10. And we looked at the warnings that God gave to all these people groups. Now, we titled the message last Sunday night, Justice for the Gentile Joneses. And we use that terminology, we sort of invoked and harkened back to the old comic strip about keeping up with the Joneses. And that's sort of become a part of our, of our lexicon, part of our, uh, you know, cultural zeitgeist, so to speak. This idea of these, uh, people that were always trying to keep up with someone else. And that's sort of how Israel was. Israel was always more interested in what her Gentile neighbors were doing than she ever was in what the God of glory sought to do through her. Uh, sounds like a lot of Christians that we know. Sounds like me sometimes. It might sound like you sometimes. We get distracted with what the world's doing and what we can do in the world instead of focusing on what the Lord desires to do in us. And so God begins to pronounce judgment. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, I'll let the cat out of the bag. Just in case your Bible didn't come with uh, the next part of the book of Amos, I'm going I'm to clue you in on it. He's going to find his way to the kingdom of Israel. And that is the primary recipient, the primary audience and focus for the prophecy of Amos. But before he gets there, he just runs the gamut. He just starts with these Gentile nations. He makes his way all the way uh, down the coastline. He goes over and deals with the people of Judah. But he is narrowing in, he is closing in upon the kingdom of Israel. Somebody might say, well, preacher, he dealt with all these kingdoms that were on the western side. Uh, that's eastern to you, but if you stand and write like I am, you'd know it's western. Uh, that all these kingdoms on the western end. Why didn't he deal with those on the eastern end or those on the northern end? Because on the eastern end was the Babylonians, and God was going to use them to judge the people of Judah. And on the northern end was the Assyrians, and God was fixing to use them uh, to judge His people Israel. God did eventually judge the Babylonians. We're told about it uh, in the Word of God, in the uh, prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. And guess what? God indeed did judge uh, the people of Assyria. We're told about it in the prophecy of Nahum and in some of the other Old Testament books. But right now, what's He doing? He's starting with these uh, these near neighbors and moving his way towards Israel. Uh, you say, well, preacher, what does that have to do with anything? That's good to know that. It's a reminder to me of this, that nobody escapes God's judgment. God don't look at it and say, hey, this is my crowd, so I'm not going to deal with them. Can I tell you this? I, I am far more likely to discipline my child than I ever am to discipline your child. I'm more apt to discipline you than I am to discipline your child. Amen? But now I'm far more apt to discipline my child before I'll discipline anyone else. And in the same way, let me tell you, uh, God, His children do, are not let go and not let run wild. Now I'm not talking about Him sending us off into a devil's hell, banished without hope and without salvation. That was addressed at Calvary. But listen, you and I are a child of God. And as such, we can anticipate that He, our Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Parent, He will keep a tight home. And He will make sure that His people are being dealt with. So He starts with these near neighbors and then... Then he does this. He moves along. And tonight, if the Lord will help us, I want us to preach on this. The condemnation of the kin kingdom. 
Now you say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, three nations before he gets to Judah are mentioned. Four total are mentioned tonight. The first is the nation of Edom. We know that the nation of Edom are the descendants of Esau. They are a blood lineage to the people of Israel. He moves from there and he talks about the people of Ammon. And then he goes on and he talks about the people of Moab. If you're a student of the Bible, in particular the Old Testament, you know that Ammon and Moab, or Ben-Ami and Moab, were the sons of Lot by his daughters. After Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, he had two, he had more than two daughters, but only two of them made it out of Sodom. And those two daughters, they got their father drunk, they lay with him, they thought the world had ended. They looked out and they said, man, we're the only people around right now. If we're going to propagate, I ain't making excuses for them, I'm just saying what they did. And he, he, they said, well, if we're going to keep the human race going, uh, we're going to have to bear children. And uh, a lot had said that they had been virgins when they were in Sodom, uh, but they got their father drunk and they lay with him. And from that unholy union, from that communion, uh, there were two nations that were produced. One was of the son Ben-Ami, and it was the Ammonites. And the other was of the son Moab, and it was the Moabites. So he condemns the Ammonites, who are blood relation to the people of Israel. Uh, and then he condemns the Moabites, who are blood relation of not only the Ammonites, but by extension, the people of Israel. And then he goes to a familiar name, the people of Judah. Now, Judah, I would say this, we've entered into a whole other category now. We're not just talking about distant relations. We're talking about the sister kingdom of the Israelites. And I would say this, I would remind you too, God was able to maintain a relationship with Judah for far longer than He was Israel. But still in the book of Amos, listen now, they're condemned as well. Say, preacher, what does that mean to me? It means this, it don't matter how long you've walked with God. It doesn't matter how good it's been between you and God. It doesn't matter how much you've done for God. Uh, listen, before he ever talked to Israel, he talked to Judah. Why was that? Because Judah in some ways had the greater responsibility. They had the temple. They had Jerusalem. Uh, they had the place of worship. They had the real thing. And so God, he does not dismiss them. And I'm saying this tonight. We may say, well, preacher, you don't understand. I've lived for God. And I've served God many years. And I know the Lord. I've had a prayer life. All those things you may have had, but where are you at right now? What about your life in this moment? I'm telling you this, don't think just because you've got a history with God uh, that you'll be spared from God keeping His children uh, unto obedience unto Him. So He's narrowing in and working His way around. I want us to take a moment tonight and I want us to look at these four condemnations. If the Lord will help us and if He tarries His coming, the best way He could help us is by not tarrying His coming. But if, if He chooses to tarry His coming and He helps us, then next week we'll just sort of dig in looking at uh, Amos' prophecy against, against Israel. We'll move on from this three transgressions and four pattern. We preached on it last week. I won't emphasize it. I won't, I won't dwell upon it or belabor it. Suffice it to say God keeps a record of our sins. Amen. For three transgressions and four. God keeps a record of our sin and there'll be a reckoning for our sin. But I want us instead to look at these four kingdoms and consider the warning and the condemnation that is given and ask ourselves, what does it teach you and I? Now again, these are people of blood relation to the people of God. These are not Gentile nations without any concept, without any knowledge, without any awareness of who God... These are people uh, that could have walked with God the same way Israel did, but there were some things that they allowed in their national history that prevented them from being a godly kingdom. Let's notice what they are. Look at verse number 11 with me. The Bible says in chapter 1, verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, 
For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Because he did pursue his brother with the sword and did cast off all pity and his anger did tear perpetually. And he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Teman, which shall devour the palaces of Basra. When we consider God's warning to the people of Edom there, what does it tell us of? I'll tell you, any time you talk about Esau in the Bible, there's a few places, if you're like me, that your mind goes to. Uh, Of course, we remember the actual narrative history of Esau there in the book of Genesis. We remember how he was born, uh, him and Jacob, and they were born at the same time, how that that, uh, Jacob came out grabbing the heel of Esau. uh, We're reminded of how they struggled within the womb and how that struggle between their personalities and peoples was foreshadowed in the struggle that they had there in the womb and, and how that Rebecca, uh, their mother, was, was uh, puzzled by the uh, turmoil that was taking place within her. You probably remember the history of Esau as a young man. He was a hunter. He was a man of the wild. He was a man of the outdoors. He was the favorite of his father, Isaac, and Isaac loved to eat of the venison uh, that uh, Esau would bring to him. You probably remember where he sold his birthright uh, for a bowl of pottage, a bowl of lentils, a bowl of red beans and you say preacher how could he do that you ever had the red beans and rice from Popeye's I'm just saying I'm not saying it's right brother Fred I'm just saying if you've had them red beans and rice from Popeye's you might not judge him quite as much but he sells his birthright we know how that later on he was he was robbed of the blessing he was robbed of the blessing but he had given up the birthright so it didn't matter We know the history. We know how that there was great bitterness that then transpired between them. That's the beginning of the story. But you know, there's another place I think about when I think about Esau, and that's the book of Obadiah. You know, the book of Obadiah is dedicated. It's God pronouncing judgment upon the people of Edom for their cruel treatment of the people of Judah when the Babylonians conquered the kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. The Bible, in fact, warns and talks about in the book of Obadiah how the Edomites went and they actually hunted down the people of Judah that had escaped and they went for nothing other than vengeance and for nothing other than malice and spite and cruelty. They went and they hunted down these Jews that had fled from the Babylonians armies and they, they took them captive and brought them back and delivered them unto the, uh, the Babylonians so that they could be killed and enslaved. And the book of Obadiah talks about God's judgment against Edom because of that. I'll tell you another place I think about. I always think about the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews talks about, about Esau. And I want you to notice, I'm going to try if I can to compare these. Listen to what Hebrews chapter number 12 says about Esau. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 says this, verse 14. Now, don't skip over any of it. Listen to it carefully. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, everybody talks about that verse and talks about that statement, holiness. And that's important, amen? Holiness is important. But it starts off by saying, follow peace with all men. So the first thing God wants on our mind when we go to this passage is peace. How to have peace with men. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Notice it didn't say, lest the the grace of God fail any man. I'm glad the grace of God doesn't fail any man. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying you're going to fall from grace. I know what Paul said in the book of Galatians. He wasn't talking about losing your salvation there, no more than uh, he's talking about it right here in Hebrews. He's saying you don't live up to what the grace of God has done in your life. You, You are not a fit vessel of the grace of God. He says this then, lest any 
root of bitterness, springing up, trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Keep that phrase, that verse, if you can, in your mind there, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Then verse 16, he says this, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. So God says in Hebrews, if you want to have peace with men, you've got to follow peace with all men. You've got to follow holiness. You've got to be diligent concerning your own self, lest you fail of the grace of God, and lest a root of bitterness springing up, many are defiled. And then he says, and let me give you an example of that, and that's Esau. Esau's a man that let the root of bitterness take, take hold in his life, and it brought forth a, a, a tragic and a heart-rendering and a sad result in the lives of others. It sprung up, and the Bible says, many were defiled. When you go to the book of Obadiah, what you're seeing is the wreckage of Esau's bitterness. And I think when we read the passage of our text tonight here in Amos chapter number 1, and it talks about Edom, the descendants of Esau, I think what we see here, Hebrews warns us against the root of bitterness. I think Amos warns us against the fruit of bitterness. Now, that's important for this reason. God describes four things that the Edomites did. Let me read them to you. He says concerning uh, the Edomites, because he did pursue his brother with the sword and did cast off all pity and his anger did tear perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. Now, we're right now trying to raise a little bit of a garden if the frost don't kill it. And when you're looking at a garden, what's at the top, the fruit is the last thing that is produced there. All the other stuff grows up first. And if you were to follow the line, you, you could cut some fruit off. It won't kill the plant. You could cut some of the top portions off and it, and it probably won't kill the plant. You might even cut it down fairly close to the ground. And it could be if it's got good roots that it won't die, that it will eventually come back. You see, there's the fruit and then there is the root. The fruit is the most visible. The fruit is what's at the top, but the root is what you have to get to if you're going to deal with it. You know what I think I see here? You might disagree with this, but I think I see here in Amos chapter number 1 in that progression. I think we see a reverse of how bitterness works in the life of a person. Let's think about it if we flip it around. Can we do that? If we read them in reverse order, here's what it would say. It would say about the Edomites and about about Esau himself that he kept his wrath forever. Then it would say that his anger did tear perpetually. Then it would say that he did cast off all pity. And then it would finally say he did pursue his brother with the sword. Now, isn't that exactly how it happened in their history? The last thing God deals with in the book of Obadiah concerning the people of Edom is them pursuing after their brother with the sword. But can I tell you something? Bitterness did not start there. No, no, friend. It was a root of bitterness. Before it ever sprung up, Brother Ken, and many were defiled, it was a root of bitterness under the ground, unseen to most people, rooted and buried deep down where nobody but God and that person knew about it. You know, I think what we have here is a warning concerning the fruit of bitterness. Can I tell you something? Uh, you may start with a little bit of bitterness that you sort of uh, that you sort of guard and you sort of uh, uh, protect, and like those uh, like those outdoor survivalist people when they're building a fire, you cup your hands around it, you breathe enough oxygen upon it just to keep it barely a glowing ember. But before long, it'll be a raging fire. Before long, it'll consume you. 
you know what I see here? Let me just let me just say it this way. I, all right, I don't know if I'm preaching you or if you're preaching me tonight, but we're going we're going to get through it. Somebody say amen to that. I want you to notice. First off, we see their indulgent attitude. The Bible says about Esau that he kept his wrath forever. You know, the first thing that bitterness needs to grow and to thrive, it needs a protector. It needs someone that values it and keeps it. Have you ever heard the phrase, time heals all wounds? Now, I'm not necessarily a proponent in believing that's always the case, but I do believe this, that the farther removed we are from a wound, from an emotional damage, the easier it is to let that thing go. That's true in my life. It's probably true in yours. The Bible says about Esau, though, every time he could have cast away his bitterness, every time he could have cast away his anger, every opportunity he had to let that thing go and let the hands and grace of God take it away, instead, he hoarded it to himself. He protected it. He shielded it. He clamped down his grip. He said, I don't want to let go of my anger and bitterness. Now, listen, I, that we might do a little bit of preaching tonight before we're done. Can I tell you something? For you to get rid of bitterness, you've got to want to get rid of bitterness. You've got to be, there's things we're begging God to take away that we won't let go of. We've got to be willing to let God do that. We've got to be willing to let God give us our joy back. We've got to be willing to let God uh, produce a, a salve of grace and forgiveness in that situation. We've got to be willing to let God destroy that root if it's ever going to be destroyed. I see his indulgent attitude. When he could cast it away, he instead, like a child, he indulged that thing. But then I noticed a second thing. I noticed, you know what it did? You know what it created? It created an incurable wound. The Bible says about his anger that his anger did tear perpetually. In other words, it never healed. You know why? Because it was always being ripped open afresh and anew. This very often, this is the reason when a person gets a, a bad cut, they'll put stitches on it. It's not just to close it up so it will heal, but it's also to prevent. That thing would eventually heal one way or the other. It would eventually scar over if it was protected, if it was kept uh, from being ripped back open. But often they put uh, sutures and they put stitches on to prevent it from being able to be ripped back open, separate again, and cause fresh damage. You know what happens when we refuse to let go of our bitterness? It continues to tear us. It continues to damage us. It continues to ravage us. And that's what happened to Esau. I've done this, and you have too, if you were to be honest. You've laid in bed at night thinking about how somebody wronged you and getting mad over it afresh and anew. You, you, I know you've done it. I've done it, so I know you've done it. Amen? Uh, you ain't no better than me. And if I've done it, you've done it. You've laid in bed at night, something that happened 15 years ago that ain't got nothing to do with nothing, but something you saw on the TV or some song you heard on the radio made you think of it again. And you've laid in bed, sat there and got angry and torn that wound open all over again over something that you thought was dealt with. It did tear perpetually. I'm telling you this, if we're not careful, we'll create an incurable wound in our heart. And you know what very often is the case? I'm just talking to you. I ain't even really preaching. All right? I'm just talking to you. You know what the problem is? Our flesh indulges that. Our flesh likes it because our flesh likes to be a victim. Because it, 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 it excuses us. It, it absolves us of our actions if we're a victim. Ain't modern society taught you anything? A victim can do anything in the world that they want. Nobody can ever say boo about it. Uh, where do you think the world got that? The world got that from our flesh. 
Our flesh is, our flesh indulges that pain, that wound, and that hurt. It's not that there's not a part of you uh, that despises that. Of course there's a part of you that despises it. It's just there's another part of you that finds it awful convenient to have uh, cover and excuse for your anger or for your bad actions ready-made anytime you choose to dig up that pain once again. It creates an incurable wound. Here's the question I have. Do you want to get over it? Or do you want to keep it there so you can pull it out and use it as an excuse any time that you desire to do so? Sadly, a lot of us, Brother Ken, we, we, that's why we guard it the way we do. That's why when somebody comes along very often tries to help us through that thing, tries to help us out of that thing, we bite back at them like an angry dog. You know why we do that? How dare you touch my bitterness? I'm protecting it. I'm saving it. I might need it again later. It created an incurable wound. You know what that produced? Notice the next phrase. If we read it backwards, everything I do is backwards. You're going to have to be patient. If we read it backwards, you know what the next thing he would have done is? He did cast off all pity. You know what it produced? It produced an indifferent countenance. Now all of a sudden, he don't care about nobody but who? But himself. That's it. Just cares about it. He cast off all pity. Lost the ability to have pity towards another person. Why did that happen? Because of that incurable wound. The Lord just won't let me move past that one. So I don't. If you'll repent of it, I'll move on from it. Because of that incurable wound, you're always thinking more about your own pain than anyone else's pain. And it robs you of the ability to empathize, to have pity, to have compassion. That's what happened to them. That's how they could look at people who were dying and being slaughtered. That's how they could look at families that were being wrecked and being ruined. And every time they looked at it, what did they think? They thought to themselves, that's what you deserve because of what your ancestors did to my ancestors. That's what you deserve because of what Jacob did to Esau. That's what you deserve. Robbed him of the ability to have pity. And then notice what it produced, the the final thing. It says that he did pursue his brother with the sword. Now we've gone a step farther. It's not just, oh, this happens to them, and I don't care that it happens to them because I'm hurting. Now it's gone further. Now it's, I've got the sword in my hand, and I'm going to produce vengeance upon them. You know what it did? It produced an inexhaustible vendetta. Notice it doesn't say he caught his brother with the sword. It says he pursued his brother with the sword. You know why that is? Because when you allow bitterness to lead you, you'll never find a destination. You'll never find a stopping point. What does it say about Esau? Uh, that though he uh, sought for uh, a place of repentance uh, through many years, though he sought it carefully with tears, he never did find peace after he lost the blessing. And it's not because he couldn't repent. It's because all the repentance that he did couldn't undo the damage that had been done by his actions. I'm saying this tonight, that inexhaustible vendetta, you'll never find a stopping point. Uh, they, they caught some of their brethren, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say they caught them. The Bible says they pursued them. You know why? Because even when they caught their brethren, even when they exacted vengeance, even when they plunged their sword into the hearts of the people that they hated most, it did not give them peace. You know why? Because that first thing, Brother Ken, they kept the wrath. They didn't want to be helped or healed of it. So I think we're being warned here about the fruit of bitterness. Notice the second thing. This is a fun sermon, isn't it? Look at verse 13. If you think it's hard on you listening, you ought to try preaching it, amen? You know God hits me before He ever hits you, amen? Verse 13 says this, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead, that they might enlarge their borders. 
But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour the palaces thereof, with shouting in the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, saith the Lord. Now, when we read that, there's one thing sticks out. And I think it's meant to stick out. I think God constructed it this way that it would stick out. Was the cruel crimes committed against the unborn in this passage. And I think it's worth, anytime we walk by this, one old preacher said this, if you buy, walk by a can, you better kick it because you don't know when you're going to be walking back this way again. I don't know when I'm going to be walking through the book of Amos again, so I'm going to go ahead and kick this can while I'm here. Let me say this, uh, the greatest sin of our country has been the sin of abortion. It's, I tell you, it, it's a testimony to the grace of God that He hasn't brought down fire and brimstone to destroy our country. And every single one of us, if we've been complicit in that thing, if we've supported people that perpetuate that and voted for people that have perpetuated that, if we've endorsed that or turned a blind eye to that, isn't it funny how quick we'll change things? You know, the people in Germany that turned a blind eye to the extinguishing of the Jews are considered some of the greatest villain, rotten scum of the earth that's ever lived, ever drawn a breath. But somehow as a country, we're allowed to turn our eye to that. And somehow we can keep polite company even though we've been complicit. We're going to answer for it is what I'm saying. We're going to answer for it. Now you say, well, preacher, there's folks that's messed up. Yeah, I understand. There's, there's grace and there's forgiveness. But I'm saying this wholesale slaughter, it ain't like this thing's behind us now. You understand it's still every day. And we ain't talking about something happened 40 years ago. We're talking about something that started 40 years ago and still happening today. I, I, think, I think we ought to recognize the atrocity of that. But really, I think there's something else that's being emphasized here. The same way we talked about the fruit of bitterness, I think what the Lord wants us to notice here is the ferocity of ambition. How it was manifest was in the murder of the unborn, and that is shown to be a a ghastly crime in this passage and everywhere else in the Word of God. It's a pagan crime. It's what the pagans did. They, They sacrificed their children to Moloch and passed them through the fire. It's a wicked thing. But I want you to notice, number one, why they did it. Can I say that was a reasonable desire that they started out in? You say, wait, wait, wait a minute, preacher. What do you mean reasonable? Well, listen to why they did it. They did it that they might enlarge their border. You say, well, what about that, preacher? Well, every kingdom, every nation throughout human history has always sought to enlarge their border. That's a natural thing for nations to do. Can I say this? That's what nations do. <laughs> That's what we Listen, we live in this world today where everything's anti-colonial, post-modern, all this stuff. Every, every problem in society is because uh, the, the, you know, the Indians colonized India or some kind of garbage. I'm saying this, for all of human history, Colonialism, uh, uh, conquering people, putting your flag in the ground and taking their natural resources, that was how the world worked. Don't get nervous on me. I'm not, I ain't making it. This didn't come off the back of a cereal box. How do you think that, that, that the world moved for generation and generation and generation? People would conquer a people. Uh, they'd plant a flag there. They'd say, this place is mine. And it would be till somebody bigger and badder came and kicked them off that land. I'm saying that's natural. You might not like it. You might not agree with it. I wouldn't want somebody pouring over the borders of my country or my house. But I'm just saying this. That's the way it's always been. I think what they wanted here was fairly reasonable. They just wanted to enlarge their borders. Two things worth noting here. Number one, here's the problem. Their reasonable natural uh, desire put them at odds 
with the covenant God of glory. You know why? Because that border they wanted to enlarge happened to be on the border with the covenant land of God's people. You know, sometimes what the world calls reasonable can still run us afoul of the Word of God. Sometimes what society deems to be acceptable and rational and reasonable, and well, that's just how everybody's doing it. Listen, just because everybody's doing it, that doesn't mean it's permissible in the eyes of God. Then I would say that uh, another instructive thing we ought to notice about that is this. Very often, the fiercest and ugliest of crimes in human history have started with a reasonable desire. Where did it go wrong? Well, I noticed not only their reasonable desire, I noticed their renegade determination. And you say, well, preacher, I don't necessarily see that there. Well, I see it there. I see it in the fact that they're willing to do anything to accomplish their cause. Now, you're telling me that these these Ammonites didn't know it was a sin against God? Even if they didn't acknowledge the God of Israel, they should have known that it was a sin against a a creator God, a generic God, uh, to rob the life of these unborn children, to murder them in cold blood? They knew it was wrong. All throughout human history, people have known murder was wrong. It don't matter where you go. You can go all the way across the globe. There are some things everybody just understands is not acceptable. doesn't mean it's not permitted. doesn't mean that there's not a blind eye turned to it. But, but mankind, humanity, understands things like murder to be sin or to be wrong or to be against the tenets of what is acceptable in society. It doesn't matter where you go in the globe. They knew it was wrong. But the problem is they made their mind up that nothing mattered except expanding that border. I'm saying this, sometimes even reasonable things, sometimes even things in our life that may not be bad in and of themselves, if we make idols out of them, if we enshrine them, if we, if we pledge our allegiance and loyalty and fealty to those things, and we say, I'm going to accomplish that, I'm going to achieve that, I'm going to see that done no matter what it costs, no matter what it takes. Listen, I can't tell you the numbers of people, and I've seen make shipwreck of their family because they got out of the house of God, got out of going to the house of God because of a job they're working or a hobby that they took up. Listen, God ain't against campers. God ain't against golf. Sometimes I wonder. But God ain't against golf. God ain't against fishing. Amen. God's not against us having a job. If a man doesn't work, he ought not eat. Those are reasonable things. But if our determination goes renegade, and if we make him an idol, we can do things we would have never thought otherwise. I see a reasonable desire here. I see their renegade determination. You know what it produced? It produced their reprehensible deeds. They have ripped up the women with child of Gilead. Two things that they did that's horrific. And I'm just going to say it and move on. First, it was to destroy life was why they did it. They wanted to, to destroy and kill the inhabitants of Gilead. This is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. This uh, book and prophecy of Amos stands as the only testimony and witness to this deed. Uh, but God took note of it because it was such a vicious, horrible, cruel thing that they would destroy these inhabitants in this cruel way. Not only that, they did it to destroy the lineage Why did they do this? Because they wanted to stop another generation of Israelites, Gileadites, being born and taking back their land. It shows how far they went is what I'm saying. And I'm saying this, you may start off with pure motives, you may start off with good intentions, but if you don't keep things in perspective and in balance, if you don't keep Jesus on the throne of your heart, if you don't keep His will as the preeminent purpose of your life, then even things that might be reasonable, even things that anybody else might be desirous of, can become idols and destructive in your life. I think he warns us of the ferocity of ambition. Notice what the next phrase says. Look in chapter 2, verse number 1. He turns his attention to Moab and he says, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And here's why. This is all he says about it. Nothing further than this phrase. Because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. Now that's a strange thing for God to address. 
By the way, can I remind you, it was the Moabites that introduced Baal worship to the children of Israel at Baal Peor. God doesn't say nothing about that. Now, that's not because God didn't judge them of it. Of course He did. But it's just, it's interesting to me that of all the things the Moabites did, none of those are mentioned. And some of them deeply, clearly, intricately recorded in the Word of God. But this obscure event that there's no scriptural record of, that's what God points to. And He says this was the final sin. You know, it's again, it's a reminder. I'm not going to preach it. I'm not going to get into it. But it's a reminder. There is a hidden boundary we can cross in God's mercy. I'm not saying God ceases to love us, but there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a boundary we can cross where God has nothing else to do but to judge us. You say, I'm a New Testament Christian uh, preacher. God doesn't judge us. Oh, yes, He does. Judgment begins at the house of God. That's New Testament. Pauline epistle, pastoral epistle. Judgment begins at the house of God. Oh, yes, God judges His children. And we can cross a boundary uh, after which God has no recourse left but to chasten us, but to judge us. I think that the reason this is mentioned is because it's what, it's what pushed them over that line. But you know, nowhere in the Bible is this actually mentioned as taking place. Uh, probably the closest thing to it. Well, I'll just go ahead and preach it. Can I, can I mention just about three, four things about it? One, let me say a word about the cause of his raid. He, why did he burn the bones of the king of Edom into lime? I think he was enraged at him. This was something that he did because of anger and rage. In fact, I think this whole little portion here deals with this thought, the futility of rage. The fact that rage and anger is to no avail and it's not how things are... Can I, can I give you a, a verse that might help you a little bit with it? The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Rage and anger and malice... And unbound fury are not how God accomplishes His means. Now, it's true, we can be angry and sin not. You know why God warned us against it? Because it's awful easy to sin when you're angry. And I think what we find in here is the futility, the folly, the foolishness of rage. What was the cause of his rage? Well, listen to what it says in 2 Kings chapter 3. This is a little bit of background, a little bit of history. The Bible tells us that, that the uh, children of Israel and the children of Judah did something that they had never done before in their history. They entered into a confederacy with the, with the kingdom of Edom. And they did this to throw off the yoke of the Moabites. In other words, they, they made peace for just long enough to try to destroy the Moabites. Now, that might have been okay to the Moabites, except for this problem. On multiple occasions, the Moabites had made a confederacy with the Edomites to destroy the children of Israel. So here's what they see. They see who they think are their friends marching up to the gates of their city, only to find out that their friends have betrayed them and are now in league with the Israelites and the people of Judah. The Bible says in verse number 26 of Second Kings 3, when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took with him 700 men that drew swords to break through even unto the king of Edom. But they could not. Now that's interesting. Not to break through to the king of Israel. Not to break through to the king of Judah. Not just to break through the lines. Not to break through and slay their greatest warrior. The king of Moab said, I want the king of Edom because he betrayed me. He could not get to him, so here's what he did. The Bible says, Then he took, verse 27, his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. To try to appease his pagan gods, to try to find some relief and, and rescue from this confederate army of the Edomites, Israelites, and people of Judah, uh, the king of Moab took his eldest son and slayed him and offered him as a sacrifice to his pagan gods. 
Now, you might disagree with what I'm about to say, but I think that was the cause of his rage. I think he was angry because he had been betrayed, and he had been betrayed so sorely that it resulted, even at his own hands, in the death of his own son. So uh, later on, whenever the Moabites defeat the people of Edom, and there's a couple places in the Bible that a war like that does take place. We don't know when exactly it was that it took place. may not even be a time that was recorded. We know that his actions are not recorded. Uh, But there were several times the people of Moab and the people of Edom after that went to war against each other. But on one of these occasions, they captured the king. And the Bible says that he burned the bones of the king of Edom into life. This was done in his rage and fury and anger. That's the crime of his rage. And you say, preacher, how do you know it was rage motivated? Because it didn't accomplish anything other than to make the king of Moab feel better. Think about this with me. Think about the carelessness of his rage. I wrote three things down, and here's what I want you to think about as it relates to your anger and mine and and us behaving and acting in anger. Number one, his enemy was not hurt by his actions. It doesn't say that he burned the king of Edom into lime. It says he burned his bones into life. You know what that tells me? It tells me the king of Edom was already dead. This was a futile effort. It did not hurt him anymore, the king of Edom, the fact that his bones were burned into life. I'd say, number two, his enemy was not hindered by his actions. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, he was already dead. It didn't hinder him anymore. It didn't, it didn't rob from him any more authority or any more power for him to burn that king's bones into life. And then I'd say this, his enemy was not humiliated by his actions. Now, you might say, well, that's not true, preacher. That's why he did it was to show his dominance, to show his prowess. Can I tell you, there might have been a lot of men that were impressed with that. There might have been a lot of men of Edom that were bothered by that. Can I tell you who of the kingdom of Edom uh, was not humiliated, was not bothered by what was done that day? The king of Edom. You know why? Because dead men don't get embarrassed. So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this, all that effort, all that energy, all, all that release of rage and fury, And it didn't accomplish anything. You know why? Because anger doesn't accomplish in and of itself anything. I noticed, though, it did produce some negative things. Notice what God said He would do to the people of Moab as a result of that. Listen to what He says there in verse number 2. He says, But I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kerioth. And Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting, and with the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the judge from the midst thereof, and will slay all the princes thereof uh, with him, saith the Lord. So, because of the anger of the king, God says, I'm going to do these three things. I I wrote them down this way. Here's why. Because I think this is what happens when we let anger dominate our lives. Number one, their comfort was removed. God said He'll devour the palaces of Kerioth. Where are the palaces? The palaces are the most lavish places there in the kingdom. They're the most luxurious places. That's where the royalty lives, Brother Fred. And God said, I'm going to devour those palaces. You know what I found? When I let anger dominate my spirit and dominate my life, you know who it bothers first and foremost? This guy right here. You know who is first affected by my anger? Me. Others may pay a price for it as well. But the first person that is discomforted by my anger is me. Notice the second thing. God says that uh, when He destroys them, that Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting, and with the sound of the trumpet. In other words, it would be chaotic. There would be chaos that would ensue. And you know, I found that's true in my life as well. I found when I let anger dominate, chaos is soon to follow. I found that when I let anger dominate me, pretty soon I don't have control of things in my life. I don't know about you, I don't like to feel out of control. I don't guess there's anybody that does. 
But I'm telling you this, when we let anger be our master, it will always produce chaos and lack of control and lack of mastery in our lives. And then I notice this, he says this, I will cut off the judge from the midst thereof. Now, what does a judge do? A judge is someone that administrates wisdom. A judge is someone that was there to tell between right and wrong. I wrote it down this way, their confusion was produced. In other words, when anger sets in, our judgment leaves. Confusion takes root. I'll do things when I'm angry that I'd never do when I'm at peace. I've done dumb things when I was angry. Listen, and I I don't know if women do this. This is probably a thing that just us dumb men do. How dumb is it to go and slam your fist into a hard surface? But probably every man in here has done it at one time or another when they was angry. How dumb is it, how dumb is it to take a $300 power tool and sling it across a front yard? Most men, they've done it at some time or another. <laughs> how dumb is that? You ever been driving down the road and somebody did something so offensive to you in traffic that for a millisecond you contemplated running into them? Ken's honest. How dumb is that? But you see, you know what anger does? It robs us of our judgment. Cause us to do things we'd never do otherwise. I don't know what I think will happen when I run into them. I don't know if I think I'm going to do some kind of wild action movie flip and spin and a barrel roll and land back on the... In actuality, all I'd probably do is just crunch up my bumper and get, get whiplash. Amen? Their confusion was producing. You notice the final thing. He says, he'll slay all the princes thereof with him, saith the Lord. I would say this, their crown was destroyed. You know what the princes are? The princes are kings in waiting. They're the future of the kingdom. And you know what I would say is this, a man that lets anger dominate his life or a woman that lets anger dominate her life, you know what she does? She short-circuits her future. She prevents herself from being able to be used of God and to be furthered in His cause. And notice the final one. I'm just going to say it and be done tonight. I don't know how many times I'm going to say that before you'll quit believing me. Probably about half a dozen less than I've already said it. You probably don't believe me already. But look at verse number 4 of chapter 2. Boy, he really hits close to home here. And he says, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, praise the kingly tribe, the tribe that went before anyone else when the tabernacle was moved. For three transgressions of Judah, the tribe of the Lord Jesus, and for four. I will not turn away the punishment thereof. What could they have done? I mean, what could they have done that they, the crown in God's, uh, the, the crown jewel in God's diadem, what could they have done that would incur uh, the, the, the wrath and the chastening and the judgment of God? Here's what happened to them. They have despised the law of the Lord, have not kept His commandments, and their lies caused them to err after the which their fathers have walked. So I think when I look at Edom, it reminds me of the fruit of bitterness. I think when I look at Ammon, it reminds me of the ferocity of ambition. I think when I look at Moab, it reminds me of the futility and folly and foolishness of rage. But I think when I look at Judah, it reminds me of the fate of blindness. Scriptural blindness. Spiritual blindness. Whenever this was pinned down, on the outside, Judah looked like a lot more spiritual of a kingdom than Israel did. 
At that time, Israel was embroiled and enthralled with pagan worship, with a corrupted form of calf worship uh, from Dan to Damascus to Bethel. Uh, it was taking place, or from, excuse me, Samaria uh, to Dan to Bethel uh, and Gilgal. This pagan worship was... Ta- but if you'd went to Jerusalem, you would have saw what you thought looked like the right kind of worship. You know the only problem was? God doesn't just look on the outside. Your Bible don't say God doesn't look on the outside. It's that God doesn't just look on the outside. He also looks on the inside. And if you had seen the hearts of the men of Judah, you know what you would have found? You would have found that they worshipped, but it was superficial. You would have found that they had ceremony, they had formalism, but it was all dead. You would have found that underneath the veneer of societal morality was really a self-indulgence and a self-interest that was leading them away from having a true heart towards God. You would have seen a lot of false start revivals and a lot of fake revivals, but you wouldn't have seen the real thing. doesn't matter if it was Hezekiah. doesn't matter if it was Josiah. All the efforts to, to renovate the kingdom's spiritual condition all fell flat as soon as the king died you would have found they had what we might call a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. How'd they get there? How'd that happen? How in the very seat of true worship had they grown blind? Well, here's how. Notice this fourfold path. One, they despised the Scriptures. The Bible says they despised the law of the Lord. Now, what does that word mean, despise? We think of it in terms of spite. And I think there is a truth there. I think they resented the fact that God sought jurisdiction in their life. You know, there's a lot of Christians like that in this day. I mean, they, they just don't understand why God has to have something to say about everything. They just don't understand why God has something to say about everything in their life. I'll tell you why. Because it's not your life, it's His life. And He wants it to be the best life that you can possibly have. There's the sense of spot. But you know what I think is, is, is really more signified here? In the Bible, when the Bible talks about something being despised, most of the time it means it's neglected. Neglected. You know, the Bible talks about in the Old Testament women that were barren, uh, that they were despised. It doesn't mean they were hated necessarily. It means they were neglected. Like, uh, like in the Old uh, Testament when the Bible talks about Jacob loving Rachel. She was the apple of his eye. And hating Leah, despising Leah. doesn't mean that, that he had a personal animus towards Leah, but that he neglected her. You know where it all starts? It starts when we neglect the Scriptures. They just quit living in them. They quit walking in them. They quit thinking in them. They quit sleeping in them. They quit uh, eating them. They quit uh, breathing them. They, they just quit making the Scriptures an everyday part of their life. You know, as long as your relationship with God and His Word is something that is pinned up and confined to a 10 or 15 minute block of your day and you don't walk with God throughout the rest of the day, you are fading yourself. You are setting yourself upon a path towards spiritual blindness. There's a lot... If, if we only have to... If you only had to talk to someone for, for ten minutes a day, you could probably get away with your relationship with them being fairly minimal. Did you hear me? If you only had to say, how close are you in the bank teller? How close are you in the bag boy at the grocery store? I don't even have any more. Robots run everything now. And you bag your own groceries. You're welcome. And everything's still expensive. You're welcome. And are still only going to open three registers. You're welcome. If you, if you have to write a check, I hope you brought a pup tent. You're going to be here for a while. I, I'm just... I, how, how much of a relationship do you have with us? Probably not much. They might hate your guts and you wouldn't know it. 
You might hate theirs and they wouldn't know it. I'm saying this, when we neglect God and His Word and our personal relationship with Him, that is the first step in spiritual blindness. You know why? Because we've only got to fake it for about ten minutes a day. We've only got to pretend to be spiritual for that short little bit of while, and then we go on and live our lives however we want. And if we're not having the Word of God present in our mind and heart, uh, being pumped and funneled into our ears and, and into our eyes, uh, then it's easy to hide out from God. They despised the Scriptures. Notice what that led to. The Bible says, then they have not kept His commandments. Then they disobeyed the statutes. Well, now that just makes sense, doesn't it? It just makes sense that if you're not in your Bible, your Bible won't be in you. It just makes sense that if you don't know what the Bible says, you can't do what the Bible says. Right? I mean, that's simple. You don't have to be a smart man to recognize that or a smart woman. That's just obvious. You have to know what it said. Well, when the Word of God... you know, And I found this true in my life. Most of the time... When I'm getting ready to have a bad, uh, make a bad decision, the Lord has something to say about it. And the Holy Ghost has something to say about it. It takes a great effort of will upon my part to drown Him out and ignore Him entirely. It can be done. You can quench the Holy Ghost. But it takes a great effort of the will on my part. And you know, I've found that the more I'm in my Bible, the more, you know, this is ammunition, right? The more ammunition he has in my life, he has the ability to speak particularly to my situation. When I despise the Scriptures, it's not long before I'm disobeying the statutes. Then you know what happens? Notice the next phrase. The Bible says their lies cause them to err. They deceive themselves. They deceive, their, their lies cause them to err. You know what happened? They told everybody how spiritual they were. Before long, they started to believe it. That's the problem with lying. Pretty soon you start believing your own lies. I'm serious. That's the problem with a liar. That's why a lot, if you see someone that is a, that is a pathological liar, most of the time they're not aware of it. You know why? They're living in a fantasy world of their own lies that they've built. And if you were to call them out, if you were to say, hey man, you lied to me, they'd just look at you. They wouldn't understand what you're saying. You, you know why? Because they've believed their lies. You know that's true in a spiritual sense as well. If you if you are, spend all your time uh, presenting to the world this spiritual facade, pretty soon you'll start to think that you're spiritual. And you know what that then produces? It produces pride. Because we don't want anybody to come along and take a, a pen and pop the balloon that we've blown up with hot air that is our pride and is our ego. They deceived themselves. They believed that they were okay. with. That's how they could perpetuate this false worship. That's how they could participate in this societal slip and decline. I'm afraid that's where we're at today as a country. We've all convinced ourselves uh, that we as, as as Americans, that we as, as what, that somehow, man, we're just, we're living in the Holy Land and we don't even see that there is the mass slaughter of the unborn in our society. That sodomy is not just permitted, but promoted and propagated and poured into the minds and hearts of our young people. And we call ourselves the godliest nation on the planet. And you say, well, preacher, well, we still are. I don't know if we are or not. But I'll tell you this, if we are, we've still got a long way to go. We've deceived ourselves. And then notice the final phrase. The Bible says, after the which their fathers have walked. You know what the implication is? They did what their fathers did. Now, what's going to happen? Now their kids are going to do what they did. You know, between when Amos, under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, pinned this down, you know, between this and... and, and, You know, the children of Judah never did repent. They'd be carried into captivity. They, They just got worse. Things just got worse. You know what they did? I wrote it this way. I guess you'll understand it. 
they deepened the cycle. So what do you mean they perpetuated it? They carried it forward to another generation. They taught another generation how to play church. They taught another generation how to put on the mask. They taught another generation how to be satisfied with mediocrity and with compromise. And you know what that generation did? That generation taught another generation. You know what that generation did? They taught another generation. And, and generation after generation after generation till you know what God says about Israel and, and Judah and their, or Judah in particular and their sin? You know what, you know what he, he says that their wound is incurable. They perpetuated that thing along those lines until finally God said, there's nothing I can do but judge. There's nothing I can do but send them into captivity. There's nothing I can do but punish them and chasten them. And you know what it began with? It began with folks that wouldn't walk in their Bibles. Say, preacher, I'm a far bit away from where they wound up. Yeah, but are you far from where they started? question is not how far are you from where they wound up. I hope everybody in this room is a far piece from where the children of Judah wound up. I want to ask you how far you are from where they started. Have you been neglecting your relationship with God and His Word? Your, your, your spiritual relationship with the Lord? If you are, you're setting yourself on that path. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I, don't want, I feel the Lord's done. I don't want to tarry it any longer. If God dealt with you tonight, you know you don't have to wait for a note to be played. You can respond immediately in obedience unto Him. But I do want to pray, and I do want to give you this opportunity. Father, I love you tonight. I thank you for your word. I pray you'd help your people this evening. Bless this invitation in Jesus' name.